This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Chutka is in clinic today and he sends his best. In the meantime, we have a great presentation lined up for you by Dr. Ed Laskowski. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Ed Sportsmed. He tweets a lot of pearls, so be sure to check it out. We'll put his handle in the description box. Now on to the presentation. Dr. Laskowski is an internationally recognized expert in sports medicine with special expertise in fitness and injury prevention. He's going to update us on sports-related foot and ankle injuries, probably one of the most commonly injured areas that we see in athletes. Thank you, Jake, and welcome, everyone. So we can see the common mechanisms for ankle sprains. This, this one reminds me, so a couple weeks ago, I have this uh, soccer player, Division I soccer player, who flew in with her mom from, from out of state and had to see me for this severe ankle injury. And, and I'm saying, oh, you know, it's during the game and stuff. And the mom's kind of with her and kind of giving her this glance and stuff. And she's like, tell them how you did it. And so, and so well, she said, I fell off my shoes. And, and, and the mom uh, gives a picture of these guys, you know. So it's like, wow. So these things can happen in a lot of different mechanisms. But <laughs> so I have nothing to disclose. And hopefully we'll kind of give a, a tour of some of the common things that we see as far as foot and ankle injuries in the athlete population. We'll try and recognize uh, those that are, uh, we shouldn't wait on, those that we should refer for surgical intervention. And then we'll touch on some of the things that Joe will expand on as far as the, the rehab of foot and ankle injuries and the concept of proprioceptive retraining. So as, as Jake said, it, 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 ankle injuries are the most common sports-related injuries, about one-fifth of all sports injuries. As you can imagine, most common in, in sports that require cutting, pivoting, and jumping. Uh, most involve the lateral ligaments, and a lot are recurrent. Uh, one out of four are recurrent. You can see there's a fair number of these every year that cost a lot of money. And uh, about one quarter of people are unable to work or attend school for one week afterwards. A ton have residual symptoms, and those can include pain, swelling, weakness, uh, and recurrent sprain. You can see the re-injury rate in athletes up to almost 50%. So these are not insignificant. Risk factors, uh, if you've had a previous sprain, uh, females, more low-grade sprains, uh, ankle braces. Now, new research shows they probably are, in certain sports, prophylactic. Um, so, uh, but the most important thing is probably they haven't done the appropriate balance and proprioceptive exercise after the previous injury. History of a previous injury, one of the most common predictors of future injury. Chronic ankle instability, those are the people who have multiple sprains. They don't use a brace. They haven't done their rehab programs. Uh, anatomically, a large Taylor curvature is more associated, decreased uh, ankle group strength, and maybe an inverted heel at heel strike are, are, may, uh, are, are predisposing factors. Again, as you know, the lateral ankle ligaments, I always say it's kind of like 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock position. The anterior talofibular is the one that is most commonly injured. About uh, three-quarters of all inversion sprains, usually the weakest of all the ankle ligaments when we do tensile strength testing. And again, you're familiar with the common mechanism, exactly as we see in both of these pictures, uh, plantar flexion and inversion. So what do we find on physical exam? Well, they're tender over the lateral ankle ligaments, especially the ATF and CF. There's swelling. The drawer, the drawer is usually positive or asymmetric if calcaneofibular is involved too. If it's only anterior talofibular, we'll probably get a good check and balance in a pretty symmetric ankle drawer. But if calcaneofibular is involved, we'll get that drawer as asymmetry. 
Uh, the perineal tendon is always something to look for because that retinaculum can be torn, then we can have a perineal subluxation associated with it. And you always want to make sure the proximal fibula and the fifth metatarsal. We'll see about five a year from, from elsewhere that, you know, kind of not getting better, whole leg pain, and palpate the proximal fibula, and they have that classic Masonu fracture. Um, again, what we're going to talk about these later, but we want to make sure they don't have syndesmotic involvement. So external rotation stress, kind of rotating tibia around fibula, uh, and squeeze test, squeezing tib-fib together, uh, challenge that syndesmotic uh, area. Taylor tilt, you hear about it a lot, but very poor sensitivity, very poor specificity. They can really have a dramatic Taylor tilt and be very functionally stable. They cannot have a dramatic Taylor tilt and be very unstable. So it's talked about a lot, but not a great test. Imaging, you're all probably familiar with the Ottawa ankle rules, uh, age 55 or greater, unable to weight bear immediately in, in the ER, malleolar tenderness, and then the tenderness at the base of the fifth and navicular. And uh, you really have to have, just, in, just to keep in your mind, weight-bearing views to really assess what we want to. So that mortise, when we put weight on, gravity challenges, that, that mortise may splay apart. So if we only rely on the non-weight-bearing views, and again, initially that may be certainly appropriate, but just remember if you have any suspicion to bring them back later, get weight-bearing views. Again, for Liz Frank and foot stuff as well as mortise stuff. And, and MRI can also be helpful. Again, this is just depicting the Ottawa rules, both malleoli, lateral and, le lateral and medial malleoli, base of the fifth metatarsal, and the navicular bones, main areas of tenderness there. 95% sensitivity, as you can see. A lot of ankle sprains coming in, into the ER have x-rays, but a very small part really have a fracture. So given the Ottawa rules, the pooled sensitivity is 97.6%. Uh, we really should be probably using them more. We probably do over x-ray this population. Interesting, though, with an ankle sprain, we see a lot of proximal changes, and we see changes in the glutes, the hamstrings, even lumbar spine muscles. So, again, there's a deafferentation. All those mechanoreceptors and proprioceptors, remember all the Golgi tendon organs and Pacinian corpuscles and all that sort of stuff, they're all disrupted. So when that happens, then there's a, that afferent system is, is impaired, then that impairs the efferent output. So that leads to that chronic ankle instability. And again, a lot of people have pain one year or longer from follow-up, and a ton with chronic ankle instability have extra-articular injury, especially some perineal tendon strain and overload and involvement. So it's, it's not an insignificant injury. So how do we treat them? Well, basic stuff at first, of course. Um, again, an ankle brace can help to, to prevent. But really, that proprioceptive training is key. We really have, need to retrain that system. We say pain-free doesn't mean normal. Just, you know, they'll, they'll ice it up. They'll hobble around. I'm okay, doc. But then some other perturbation challenge comes. Oh, man, I sprained again. We really have to take time to train that back in. Otherwise, it won't get back in. And uh, we've done some studies here. Um, what, is, what does this training really do, like single leg stand or ankle disc training, stability training? We actually took uh, 20 healthy adults. Um, we actually uh, uh, simulated an ankle sprain. So, <laughs> so it's like, would you want to almost have your ankle sprained? You know, so a lot of medical students sign up for this. Uh, yeah, sure, I will. <laughs> so, so it was good that they did because we got the study done, but we had five males, five me females in each group, and what we did is we actually, I'm going to show you the apparatus here, we kind of tested an almost sprained their ankle, gave them a perturbation similar to an inversion uh, 
perturbation. Then we trained them for eight weeks doing stability training. And then we tested them again. So we had them in this apparatus, a customized platform. We had a trap door. <laughs> so they, <laughs> they were blocked out, white noise, didn't know what was going to happen. You know, and then we kind of dropped the door out, an inversion moment of 20 degrees. Again, did not sprain it. No medical students were harmed. <laughs> but we did. We had fine wire EMG in all the muscles around the ankle. And we timed the perturbation. And what we found is there was a, it was interesting because we thought the perineals may kick in quicker to kind of protect the ankle from going into inversion. But what happened, the perineals probably have this, this maximum speed that they can contract, but the other muscles that were agonistic to inversion, like posterior tibialis and all, were blunted. So it was a remodulation of the whole system. So it favored the correction of an inversion moment. And these were guys who hadn't even had sprained an ankle. So you can see here the control really rock solid, stable all the way through. But in the experimental group, we had significant differences in those muscles that may be agonistic toward ankle inversion. So there's a remodulation that occurs, and we did, we did this same kind of thing with people who had an ankle sprain. We found that whole activation pattern changed, too, when we trained them, when we gave them stability training. They, they actually got better at coordinated co-contraction. And there was interesting, we found a, a, a cross-training effect that even though we were training the injured ankle, we had found a proprioceptive improvement in the opposite side, too, which was kind of unexpected. Joe's going to talk about this, the high ankle sprain, syndesmotic injury. That's a, that's a continuum there of diastasis of the ankle mortis from a, a, just a real minor sprain to actually a, a diastasis. These guys do worse as far as having prolonged symptoms, takes them longer to get back. Usually it's a forced hyperdorsiflexion, forced external rotation moment, kind of the opposite of what we just saw, so kind of an external rotation stress. They're, they're a fair amount in the general population, highest in football. Um, again, they take a long time to get back. And the key thing is if we miss them, they really can have significant morbidity. As little as one millimeter of lateral displacement of the mortise can decrease the surface contact area by 40%. So you got all the same weight going, going through 40% area. So arthritis can just bloom. And you know, there's x-rays like six months later we see degenerative changes developing. So we really don't want to miss these. So again, mechanism, external rotation, hyperdorsiflex, planted foot, tibia, uh, the fibula externally rotates, usually the anterior tibiofibular ligament and the interosseous ligament, those ligaments uh, that, that basically hold the tibia to the fibula are torn because of this rotational stress. And that's why we do external rotation stress tests. You're basically trying to replicate this to see if it's present. Again, squeeze test, external rotation stress test, they put stress on that syndesmotic membrane. But really, we don't have a reliable test that can detect the degree of injury. So imaging studies are really key. Standing x-rays, again, we want them weight-bearing if we can. Uh, but we want to see overlap between the tibia and fibula, usually about up to one-third. Uh, CAT scan, MRI certainly can also be helpful, but uh, they're not correlative necessarily with functional stability. Uh, grade 1 injuries, lower grades, they can do well, certainly. Uh, over time, uh, we put them in a walking boot, then stability and proprioceptive exercise. Um, arthroscopy, if there's a subtle MRI shows some edema, they're not getting better, they can, that can be helpful in sorting it out. We really need to stabilize those with documented diastasis, and that's going to prevent that orth arthritic change from coming in there when we do that. Deltoid ligament injuries, medial aspect of the ankle, again, they're, they're a small portion, but again, that mechanism is eversion and external rotation. Very, very unusual to get an isolated deltoid injury, and that's, again, where we're going to be looking for that syndesmotic involvement or fracture. Um, and these take longer to get better also. 
Achilles tendinosis and peritendinitis. Well, tendinosis, again, is degeneration in the tendon substance associated with a lot of what we call neovascularization. There's new blood vessels that grow around that tendon, and it's more of a degenerative change. So even it's not a, that's why we don't call it an itis. It's not really an active inflammation. It's more of a degeneration with fibrous tissue and neovascularization. Peritendinitis is inflammation within the peritenon. And the reason why we have problems in the Achilles is that the tendon is poorly vascularized, vascularized. It does not have a great blood supply, so it takes a long time to heal and is at risk, especially about two centimeters proximal to the calcaneal insertion. You know, you're all probably familiar with all the causes that we can get, uh, certainly movement flaws, terrain changes, too much too soon, uh, anatomic factors, pronation, hind foot and forefoot varus, tight heel cords, um, all those things can play into it. Again, usually it's uh, one to three centimeters proximal to the bony insertion is the tender point. Can be worse in the morning, toe walking and stair climbing. Uh, to kind of separate the tendon from the peritenon, if, if you kind of move the ankle and dorsine plantar flexion, if it's in the tendon, then the point of the tenderness moves, cephalad and caudad, when you move the ankle into dorsiflexion. If it's in the peritenon, it doesn't move when you, when you move the ankle. How do we treat it? Well, we correct those errors and training errors and movement flaws. Eccentric strengthening you may be familiar with, so that's that slow letdown, say after a calf rise. Alfredson uh, is the first one to kind of postulate the efficacy of that. And there probably is some mechanical debridement. We talked about that neovascularization. And, and with eccentric training, we see it almost breaks up some of those neovessels and is almost doing the same thing that we're trying to do with some of our uh, minimally invasive techniques. So it's certainly a, a good gold standard to try as a first-line uh, therapy. Uh, be aware of he heel lifts because, you know, it's kind of doing the opposite of what we want. If we just give them that heel lift, it's, they may be okay temporarily, but it's shortening that tendon. We don't want that long term. Um, you can do high volume image guided injections, so lidocaine and saline fluid dissecting along the tendon sheath under ultrasound guidance. That can break up that neovascularization, and, and some studies show that to be very favorable. And then a lot of other things are, are tried, um, platelet-rich plasma we can try, extracorporeal shockwave therapy, prolotherapy tendon fenestration, making little holes in the tendon under ultrasound guidance. Not a lot of evidence on, on either of them. All of them seem to, to help a little bit and, and tend to, to portend the good outcomes, but uh, we don't have you know, huge studies on each of those areas, but, but positive studies with most. The 10X procedure we'll talk about is kind of a debridement of that scar tissue and that, that new uh, degenerative tissue that's forming in the, in the tendon. And then surgical debridement is rare, but, but can be helpful in select cases. The 10X is something, it's, it's ultrasound guided, so a little bit bigger than the, your classic needles, but it's, uh, it kind of oscillates back and forth, this hollow bore needle. Uh, it's inserted under ultrasound guidance, and it almost uh, liquefies and emulsifies the t the, from healthy tendon to degenerative tendon. It takes away that degenerative tendon portion. So you can imagine with, uh, with Achilles tendinopathy, also with uh, lateral condylitis that's refractory, a, uh, plantar fasciopathy, um, it's really a nice tool. And again, it's a relatively new tool, but we're seeing very nice um, outcome results, and uh, long-term data is also looking pretty favorable. Minimally invasive procedure, can do it in the office, local anesthetic. Achilles tendon ruptures, you know, probably all familiar with, there probably is some predisposing factor in the tendon itself, the saying normal tendons don't tear. And when we do MRI studies on the, on the opposite tendon of somebody who's torn, we see degenerative changes usually in that tendon, so there's probably a predisposing factor there. We know who it occurs in, usually weekend warriors, usually during basketball, they say that, oh man, I got kicked in the calf, or I got shot in the calf. 
Thompson test, we squeeze the calf and, and there's no uh, plantar flexion, that's a, a nice test, but oftentimes other factors confound that. Uh, posterior tib and toe flexors also can do that. So if you have a palpable gap, X-ray, we rule out an avulsion. Certainly M MRI and ultrasound can provide detail and delineate the degree of retraction of these fibers when that occurs, because that can impact on the healing. And the, you know, the big debate continues whether to operate or not operate. This has been going on about 30, 40 years, and it seems like every five years there's a plethora of research favoring one or the other. And the point is, I think you can do well with both. Um, this is a study from JBJS, uh, a NICE study from 2010 that really didn't find any difference. Classically, non-operative treatment is associated with higher rates of re-rupture, re but lower rates of infection and, and complication. Surgery, higher rates of complication, lower rates of re-rupture. Those are kind of narrowing with new techniques, and early rehab now is really becoming, and it's just like with the a ACL almost, we're really finding we can weight bear and load the tendon much earlier than we used to. So whether you're a, a surgical or non-surgical, accelerated rehab is really the, the course now. And I think you can do well with both. I have a tough time con convincing people they have a non-operative option, because usually people think they, they definitely need surgery with this. But I've had some you know, mid-20-year-olds who've, who've done it non-operatively and done great too. So you can do that. Liz Frank injuries, that's a tarsal metatarsal joint. That's the base of the fifth metatarsals in our articulation with the three cuneiforms and the cuboid. So that Liz Frank ligament is that ligament that goes between the medial cuneiform to the second metatarsal. So that's the, the point of tenderness, the point of injury. And that's a key because it's kind of like a linchpin. When, that, when that's torn, you can almost dislocate the foot. So, so if we miss these, that's almost what we can have in severe cases. How do these happen? Well, it's usually a, an axial load and a plantar flexed foot position. Non-contact twisting rotation can occur too. They'll have tenderness at the base of the first and second metatarsals. That's key. They'll have painful weight bearing and toe raise. Um, again, this is a continuum. It can be a very mild sprain without instability to a frank dislocation. And again, we have to identify them early, otherwise uh, significant consequences. Things that we look for on x-ray, you can see this bony flex sign. There can be a compression fracture of the cuboid. The key thing is this diastasis. We do not want to see a lot of clear space between the base of the first and second metatarsals and or the medial and middle cuneiforms. You can stress test these individuals. Um, when we pronate and adduct the foot under fluoroscopy, you can sometimes see that diastasis become more apparent. And MRI is certainly very helpful for, for a detailed assessment of the Liz Frank ligament and the tarsal metatarsal joint. There's a ton of classifications of these, believe it or not, in varying stages, but basically, as you can imagine, the, the earlier stages involve mainly the ligament sprains. These do well non-operatively. The later stages involve more degrees of diastasis and almost, again, a dropping off of that, that foot into a dislocated fashion and a loss of the medial longitudinal arch. They lose arch height there. How do we treat them? Again, if it's lower stage, they do well with a walking boot, non-weight bearing, proprioceptive retraining. We don't have exact parameters on the degree of diastasis that people tolerate, but five millimeters or less is a good thing to, to go by. If it's five millimeters or less, they can usually do well without surgery. If they do have surgery, the goal is to maintain anatomic reduction. Sometimes we'll have to debride uh, interposed scar tissue to achieve that. When they go back, steel carbon shanks, low impact training, stiff soled shoes, pretty good data. 90% of NFL players with this injury return to play at a meeting of 11 months, so it's a long time for this. 
there is a fair part that never returned, about 7% never returned. And then um, when you analyze them, they, they usually did pretty well, whether they're offensive or de defensive players. Plantar fasciitis we all know about, that medial calcaneal pain, worst in the morning. Uh, just think of the other things that can be in that area, though, including S1 radiculopathy. We always want to make sure that that's what it is. First steps in the morning. Again, a lot of this may be compounded by proximal stuff like hip abductor weakness, dynamic medial knee valgus. That may play into plantar fasciitis. So orthotics, we stretch certainly the plantar fascia as well as the Achilles because there's that windlass mechanism. It's, the, it's kind of like a, a pulley system there. We want to address the core, though, and lumbopelvic stability because that plays into the forces we're going to appreciate at the foot. So um, that's, that's certainly something to look at. So we do benefit. This is our, our video analysis that we do of our runners. So, you know, again, if you have these plays, she's got poor hip abductors, uh, dynamic medial knee valgus. These are all predisposing factors to lower extremity overload injury. Jones fractures you've heard about. There's fracture at the, base, uh, at the fifth metatarsal at the, at the neck, basically. And that's because there's a watershed blood supply. There's blood flow up here, blood flow up here, not too much here. So when you get a fracture here, it doesn't heal very well. But that's, that's much different. Uh, the base of the fifth metatarsals heal great. Necks usually, or the heads usually feel, heal great. But this is the one to be wary of. And the reason being, you can go to a fairly high rate of non-union with these fractures and a fairly high rate of non-refracture. Non, uh, uh, so when we, even though we keep them in a walking boot, we have to monitor them carefully. And that's why in higher level athletes, the surgical threshold is actually quite low. So usually they'll have a percutaneous pinning. Uh, one study showed that 100% return to play average of nine weeks, two patients refractured. So that, that is becoming more the standard because of those high risks of non-union. Turf toe, the only game that Sweetness ever missed, Walter Payton, was a turf toe injury. It's a capsular injury, uh, a hyper plantar flex, uh, uh, a hyper extension actually of the first MTP joint uh, along with an axial load force. Uh, the thing to watch out for, they just check, make sure the flexor halysis longus is working because it's attached in that capsule. Um, when you move the toe, we should not ha see proximal migration of the sesamoids. That means that that capsule is very disrupted, so that's one thing you don't want to see. If that's the reason why you would do surgery if you saw proximal migration of those sesamoids. Um, but otherwise, they do very well. We want that rigid medial sole plate to provide a, a rigid stability there so they don't uh, produce a fulcrum of motion and force around that joint. Morton's neuroma, most common lesion found in the foot. It's really not a neuroma. It's a degenerative process of the nerve. Um, really uh, usually occurs more in a, in a very flexible foot with excessive pronation. Pain on the plantar aspect of the foot, most commonly the, the third and fourth web space. And that's dull throbbing. They radiate into the toes. Give them a wide toe box. Orthotics can very, be very helpful because it unloads the metatarsal heads. Oftentimes, if you just put metatarsal pads in there, they'll feel like they have a little pebble in the shoe there. Certainly injections, ultrasound guided can help, and surgical excision has a great rate of success. It's a whirlwind of a tour there, but thank you very much for listening. Thank you.